This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, just like anyone else. My city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life with freedom and human dignity we all deserve. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and, ch- Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. You just listened to a portion of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib's speech during a debate on whether or not the House should move forward with a motion to censure her. Now, that motion advanced in a 208 to 213 vote. And at the time that I record this video, I don't know the outcome of the final vote, but who knows which way it's going to go. Either way, this effort is nefarious and disingenuous, and that's what I want to talk about. Now, on top of that vote and that debate, Marjorie Green has reintroduced her resolution to censure Tlaib after it failed the first time last week. Now, this entire effort, it is comprised of lies, hypocrisy, bigotry, and cowardice, and this is a coordinated attempt to condemn the only elected Palestinian-American woman in Congress. And we're going to get to why I say that. I think it's going to be evident towards the end of this video. But first, I do want to show you more of her speech because what she says here is critically important. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. It's growing every single day. There are millions of people across our country who oppose Netanyahu's extremism and are done watching our government support collective punishment and the use of white phosphorus bombs that melt flesh to the bone. They are done watching our government, Mr. Chair, supporting cutting off food, water, electricity, and medical care to millions of people with nowhere to go. Like me, Mr. Chair, they don't believe the answer to war crimes is more war crimes. The refusal of Congress and the administration to acknowledge Palestinian lives is chipping away at my soul. Over 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. Majority, majority were children. But let me be clear. My criticism has always been of the Israeli government and Netanyahu's actions. It is important to separate people and governments, Mr. Chair. No government is beyond criticism. The idea that criticizing The government of Israel is anti-Semitic since a very dangerous precedent, and it's being used to silence diverse voices speaking up for human rights across our nation. Do you realize what it's like, Mr. Chair, for the people outside the chamber right now, listening in agony to their own government dehumanizing them? 
to hear the President of the United States we helped elect dispute death tolls as we see video after video of dead children and parents under rubble. 71% of Michigan Democrats support a ceasefire. So you can try to censor me, but you can't silence their voices. I urge my colleagues to join with the majority of Americans and support a ceasefire now to save as many lives as possible. President Biden must listen to and represent all of us, not just some of us. I urge the president to have the courage to call for a ceasefire and the end of killings. That right there is what speaking truth to power looks like. And currently, it's a really lonely place, unfortunately. The people behind Rashida Tlaib there, they were showing solidarity and support. And I really am thankful that she has some people by her side, at least. But for the most part, most people in Congress are against her, including Democrats. But despite that, future historians are going to look back at this moment and they're probably going to be shocked by the treatment of Congress's lone Palestinian-American voice. But we're going to listen to some of the reasons why Republican Congressman Rich McCormick believes that Tlaib should be censured. Uh, what he says here is important because he is the individual who sponsored this resolution. But nonetheless, I'll let him explain why he supports this. Whereas Representative Rashida Tlaib, within 24 hours of the October 7 barbaric attack on Jewish citizens of the state of Israel, representing the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust, defended the brutal rapes, murders, beheadings, and kidnappings, including of Americans, by Hamas as justified resistance to the, quote, apartheid state, end quote. Whereas on October 18, 2023, Representative Tlaib continued to knowingly spread the false narrative that Israel intentionally bombed the Al-Ali Arab Hospital on October 17 after United States intelligence, Israeli intelligence, and President Biden assessed with high confidence that Israel did not cause the explosion. Whereas on November 3, 2023, Representative Tlaib published on social media a video containing the phrase, quote, from the river to the sea, end quote which is widely recognized as a genocidal call to violence to destroy the state of Israel and its people to replace it with a Palestinian state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you didn't know any better, you would think that Rashida Tlaib was a terrible person based on his assessment of her comments. But the problem is he is lying. So let's get back to her original statement where he accuses her of defending Hamas's rapes and murders and kidnappings. First and foremost, she expressed remorse for the lives lost that day, but explained that the apartheid conditions perpetuated by the Israeli government is what's fueling radicalism that endangers both Israelis and Palestinians. And she says, quote, the path to that future of peace must include lifting the blockade ending the occupation and dismantling the apartheid system that creates the suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that can lead to resistance. Understanding why something happens is not the same thing as justifying it. Rich McCormick knows this, but he chose to pretend as if Tlaib is literally defending rape and murder as justified resistance. Now, you can accuse her of being unclear with her words. You can say that that statement should have been worded better, but saying that she justified Hamas's brutality is downright slander. It's a smear and he knows it. Now, he also says that she knowingly spread false information about the hospital bombing. Now, perhaps she also maybe should have waited a little bit longer before commenting on that. You can make that case. But weeks later, we still don't really know. Sure, U.S. intelligence says one thing, but the independent analyses that we've seen from the New York Times, Channel 4, and Al Jazeera say that it's likely the bomb came from Israel. 
Now, for me, I tend to agree more with journalists than our intelligence agencies, considering that they also told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. But again, we don't know. I don't know. He doesn't know. But what we do know is that since that bombing took place, regardless of who did it, Israel has bombed ambulances. They've bombed refugee camps. They've bombed the cancer ward of a pediatric hospital. They've used white phosphorus. They've slaughtered the families of journalists. They've dropped lots of bombs since then. And your silence about those bombings says quite a bit, does it not? But when it comes to the use of from the river to the sea, which he also condemns, it is true that the phrase has been used by Hamas. And the way that they use it is genocidal, which makes it seem tainted to the rest of us. But Palestinians still use the phrase despite Hamas's cooptation and contrary to popular belief, when Palestinians who are not Hamas, which is the overwhelming majority of them, use that phrase, they are not calling for genocide. Palestinian historian Maha Nassar has an in-depth write-up about this in Forward, which is a Jewish publication, by the way, and she explains that the phrase became popular in the 1960s, long before the existence of Hamas, as an effective call for a single secular state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. And today, there are still calls for a one-state solution, which is why the phrase is still used. And people who call for a one-state solution are doing so because the possibility of a two-state solution seems impossible at this point. In fact, Avi Schlein, a British-Israeli historian, explains why a two-state solution is dead. And you'll notice that as he advocates for a one-state solution, he invokes from the river to the sea. And you're going to see why he uses that term. I used to support a two-state solution. But Israel has killed the two-state solution with the settlements. It's a struggle now between right-wing ethno-nationalism and liberal ethno-nationalism, and, and I don't approve of either. An essential element of democracy is equal rights. Today I support one democratic state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all its citizens regardless of religion um, and ethnicity. The experience that my family and I had of living together, coexisting uh, with Arabs, gives me reason for hope that what happened once in the Middle East can happen again. So when he invokes from the river to the sea, he is not talking about genocide. He's talking about peaceful coexistence. That is the context within which Rashida Tlaib is also using it. And it's not like we have to speculate about that because she explained the context within which she uses this phrase. Quote, from the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. My work and advocacy is always centered in justice and dignity for all people, no matter faith or ethnicity. Now, you can argue that she still shouldn't use it because Hamas uses it, therefore it's bad, or it's going to have a different meaning now since Hamas has been using it. But I can't fault oppressed people who refuse to let language they use to advocate for themselves be co-opted. And on top of that, the context matters. So even if you think that she shouldn't use that phrase, you don't get to pretend as if she is using it in a way that is indistinguishable from Hamas, but that's what McCormick is doing. He's saying that her use of from the river to the sea is indistinguishable from Hamas. It's a lie, but it hasn't stopped Republicans from repeating it. For example, Marsha Blackburn took to Twitter to accuse Rashida Tlaib of supporting a genocide as well. 
but it's a slanderous lie, and they know it's a lie. This isn't about Rashida Tlaib supporting violence and genocide because they know that she doesn't. She's more peaceful than all of them. What this is about is Rashida Tlaib daring to challenge the status quo that they don't want to be challenged. They want to maintain the status quo, and her challenging it is a threat. That's why they're trying to demonize her. That's why they're trying to silence her. And spineless Democrats who are too afraid to challenge power are joining Republicans in this witch hunt against the only Palestinian American in Congress as well. Take Democrat Jared Moskowitz, for example, who explains why he didn't support Green Center Resolution, but he will be supporting this one. It sounds like you're contemplating supporting a censure resolution against her if there were one. I assume you voted against the one that Marjorie Taylor Greene... Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene brought up a censure having to do with an insurrection. And let's not... Let's be no, of course, it was not an insurrection. Uh, it was not an insurrection. A, and, and October 7th should not be conflated with any other date on the right. calendar. So, but if there were one that was more about what she said that I just read, that's something it, you would support. If a censure comes on her misinformation on the hospital bombing, which obviously we know was not true, that she continued to spread even after intelligence came out, it wasn't true, and on from the river to the sea, I would support that censure. If you're wondering why this Democrat is joining Republicans to censure one of his Democratic colleagues, well, all you have to do is follow the money. APAC, a racist insurrectionist Republican supporting organization, is his number one campaign contributor, or was for the 2022 cycle. So I'm assuming that his refusal to call for a ceasefire and condemnation of his Palestinian colleague has something to do with that. But he's not alone because 70 Democrats have also condemned the phrase, including Richie Torres, Chantel Brown, Josh Gothheimer, Steny Hoyer, Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, Dina Titus, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and others. And Democrats from her home state have also come out to loudly denounce her. For example, Michigan Senate President Jeremy Moss denounced her, saying Hamas uses the phrase as a rallying cry, and they don't simply want to displace Jews in Israel, they want Jews dead. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, who bungled the case against criminals who poison Flint's water, writes, I have supported and defended you countless times, even when you have said the indefensible, because I believed you to be a good person whose heart is in the right place, but this is so hurtful to so many. Please retract this cruel and hateful remark. Noah Arbid, a state representative for West Bloomfield, writes, It is disturbing and enraging that Jewish communities in Southfield, Franklin, Bingham Farms, Beverly Hills, and beyond are represented by someone who adopts wholesale the call for the state of Israel to be wiped from the map, necessitating the elimination of 8 million Jews. I mean, this is downright defamatory. She is calling for freedom from oppression, freedom from a genocide being conducted against Palestinians. And as everyone else turns away, they're saying, actually, no, the person who is saying genocide is bad is actually the person who supports genocide. It is very Orwellian and despicable. So everyone is condemning her. Members of Congress, her own Democratic colleagues, politicians in her state are speaking past her, accusing her of genocide, even though she has made it very clear she does not support that. She supports peace for both Israelis and Palestinians because she's a good person and a proponent of peace. It's not just this issue where she advocates for peace. Look at her record. But yet, she's the only politician in that state who actually is doing what they're supposed to do. She's representing her constituents. Most Americans support a ceasefire. Her constituents in Michigan support a ceasefire. And she was one of the first to call for a ceasefire, while almost every other politician hid in a corner somewhere shitting themselves at the thought of daring to utter the word ceasefire. It's pathetic.
And rather than condemning Israel's war crimes, these cowards are trying to turn Tlaib into public enemy number one in order to distract you from their support of an actual genocide. For example, Josh Gothheimer told CNN's Manu Raju that he will indeed be voting to censure Tlaib in the wake of her River to the Sea comment after he himself allegedly blamed all Muslims for Hamas's attack. So he reportedly interjected loudly in a Democratic meeting and either said all Muslims are guilty or they all should feel guilty. Now, regardless of what he said, promoting this idea of collective responsibility, blaming an entire group of people, all Muslims, for the acts of Hamas is rhetoric that is used to justify genocide. I mean, this is what the president of Israel said. You know, they are all guilty in Gaza because they didn't rise up to overthrow Hamas. So you have Josh Gothheimer saying that, being explicitly Islamophobic, but yet Democrats are feigning concern over Tlaib's words. Haven't bothered to call out explicitly genocidal rhetoric from Republicans they're aligning with to condemn her or call out the Islamophobia of their colleagues like Josh Gothheimer and his gross generalization of all Muslims. But guess what? People are paying attention. We're seeing the cowardice and it's not going to go unnoticed. In fact, this was pointed out on MSNBC as well. I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. Eamon, you and I have discussed outrageous statements made by Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert on this show, in this handover for years now. I cannot think of a more outrageous statement from a Republican politician than what I just heard, basically saying civilians in Gaza have no protections. They could be targeted. They can be killed. It's open season by saying they're not civilians. They're like Nazis. And I just think about how much time we have spent this week. Americans have spent looking at college campuses and protesters placards and what phrases are used. And yet this guy, I haven't had anyone denouncing him from the top of the Democratic Party. No, I mean, the comments, uh, they're not only abhorrent, um, they reflect a deep ignorance from this congressman who we should also note showed up to uh, Congress dressed in an Israeli military uniform um, in the early days of this war. But as you said, this is a reflection of where the Republican Party is in this country, where the discourse is in this country at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's it's troubling and it's scary. It's a, it reflects an anti-Palestinian sentiment that's not just in words. I mean, you actually now have uh, a member of the Republican Party, Representative uh, Ryan Zinke, who introduced this bill yeah. to basically ban Palestinians from this country, to strip Palestinians who are in this country and have them deported. Um, and it goes to show you the grotesque level of anti-Palestinian uh, sentiment that now has plagued the Republican Party, not only in words, but in actions as well. So you, I, I am not surprised. It is disgusting. It is shameful. And as, as you said, it goes unchecked and it goes without any condemnation from the highest levels of the Republican Party. And no condemnation from the highest level of the Democratic Party, which really upsets me. Yeah, they're too busy accusing Rashida Tlaib of genocide to notice the genocide that Israel is doing in Gaza or even notice the Republicans who are literally justifying the deaths of innocent Palestinian civilians. But I mean, it goes back to this general bigotry against Palestinians that is socially permissible in the U.S. And that explains why there's so much hate directed at the only Palestinian American. It's bigotry, it's Islamophobia, and it's racism.
And because she dares to challenge the status quo and defend her people, Republicans and Democrats are tripping over themselves to condemn her. They are the biggest fucking cowards on the planet, and I have no respect for them. But thankfully, some Democrats are actually taking notice of all of the terrible things that Republicans are saying. Democrat Sarah Jacobs, for example, has moved to force a vote to censure Brian Mast for comments that are actually genocidal. And during the debate for this resolution, Ilhan Omar had some choice words for Mast. It is glaring hypocrisy when you have Republicans on the other side of the aisle trying to create definitions and say Rashida wants to annihilate people when Max Miller himself went on TV and said we're turning Gaza into a parking lot and we want to annihilate Palestinians. Nobody condemned him on that side of the aisle. What is true here is that every single one of them has not acknowledged the fact that Palestinians are dying in the tens of thousands but we'll continue to say it is us who are not acknowledging humanity. Rashida will stand strong. Gentle ladies, time has expired. And the movement will continue for liberation until every single Palestinian has the right G to Gentlemen live from Maryland is That was fantastic. It feels so gross to see lawmakers feign outrage over Rashida Tlaib's support for genocide while they turn a blind eye to an actual genocide that's happening in Gaza. I mean, it's it's despicable. But it can't possibly be a genocide if you don't view the victims of Israel's indiscriminate bombs as human beings that are equal to you. And as that number grows, we all risk growing more detached from all the suffering because larger numbers are so much more difficult to visualize. So when we hear 4,000 Palestinian children are dead, we know that that's bad and it still might elicit a visceral response, but it's hard to imagine what that looks like. So I want to bring it down to a smaller scale and look at a couple of examples that have haunted my mind for weeks. So this 12-year-old Gazan boy, Ani Eldus, was just a couple of years older than my nephew. He was a gaming YouTuber. He loved video games, and his dream was to hit 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. And the video clip to the right is him announcing that he hit 1,000 subscribers. He is never going to realize this dream because he was killed in an Israeli airstrike. He's not responsible for the atrocities committed by Hamas. He wasn't even alive when they came to power. He was just a kid and he wanted to be a gaming YouTuber, but his life is now gone forever. Now, this last one is also incredibly heartbreaking. This is seven-year-old Mujahid who drew a picture for the people who were giving him chemotherapy for his cancer. And uh, him and his entire family were killed after a bomb was dropped on his home. Just seven short years of life. We're talking about human beings. Their lives are precious. Like us, they feel pain. They have hopes and dreams. They want to live. And one of the few members of Congress who is advocating for their right to exist is being slandered by everyone who's too fucking afraid to tell Israel to stop because they don't know what that would mean for their political career. Or they don't know if, you know, that's going to elicit some backlash. Who cares? How can you see the images that we're all seeing and remain silent? I mean, in this instance, silence is violence. If you're not speaking out against this, you are complicit. And that goes for everyone who refuses to call for a ceasefire. Bernie Sanders, my representative, Joe Biden, they're all cowards. And they absolutely deserve to be condemned by us until they call for a ceasefire. I mean, when we look back at this moment years from now, I want you to ask yourself, which side 
do you want to have been on? The side who defended human dignity, Rashida Tlaib, who's saying, I want all Palestinians and Israelis to be free, or the side who didn't, the side who turned a blind eye to genocide. I know which side I'm on. I think Democrats need to stop fretting, need to stop looking at this as a warning and look at it as a wake up call to organize, to mobilize, to register people, to talk about the accomplishments of this administration. If you want to beat Donald Trump, stop clutching your pearls and get to work. You just heard Anna Navarro's response to Democrats concerned about new polling, which indicates that Biden is in serious danger of losing to Donald Trump. Now, even though she was probably the most dismissive, her response was emblematic of basically everyone else on the panel with one exception. Now, we're going to come back to the view in a moment. But first, I do want to look at these polls that confirm Biden is indeed in serious danger. On Sunday, a poll conducted by Siena College and The New York Times found that Trump is ahead in five out of six swing states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and in the only swing state where Biden is ahead in Wisconsin, he's still polling within the margin of error. Now, when you look at the crosstabs, voters trust Trump more on the economy by 22 points, immigration and national security by 12 points, and even Israel-Palestine by 11 points, which is shocking considering the fact that a Data for Progress poll conducted in mid-October found that 66% of voters support a ceasefire, including 57% of independents and 56% of Republicans. Which suggests that voters think Trump will be less militaristic than Biden when it comes to Israel, which is not the case, obviously. They're both bad, with Trump probably being worse. But it just goes to show you how badly Biden's image is among voters, with them only trusting him more on abortion and democracy by nine and three points, respectively. So if voters barely trust you more on democracy, trust you more than the guy who's been indicted on 91 counts for trying to stage a coup, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And I don't know how else to put it. Now, this New York Times poll does not seem to be an outlier because in October, Gallup poll found that Biden's support among Democrats dropped 11 points within a single month. And the numbers in Michigan are in line with findings from a poll by the Arab American Institute, which found that Biden's support among Arab Americans plummeted to 17 percent after 59 percent of them supported him in 2020. And a poll commissioned by Detroit Action got the same result with only 16 percent of Muslim Americans saying that they'd vote for Biden again, with two-thirds saying that they'd vote against him. Now, the same poll found that a majority of Michigan Democrats support a ceasefire in Gaza, and 92% of Arab Americans and 75% of voters under 30 also support a ceasefire. But we're not done yet because a CBS News poll finds that a majority of likely voters believe that Trump's level of support for Israel would be about right compared to Biden's. And the same respondents also believe that having Biden as president would increase the chance of war by 10 points and having Trump as president would increase international peace and stability by 16 points. Holy shit, this is bad. Now, Biden's also doing poorly on the economy in this poll as well. Voters believe that the economic policies of Biden and Trump would disproportionately favor the wealthy. But a plurality of voters think that Trump's economic policies would be better for their own personal finances. 
In other words, if Biden doesn't immediately reverse course, he is going to lose to Donald Trump next year, a reality that his team is very much aware of. In fact, his campaign manager admitted that this is going to be a very close race. And behind the scenes, they're shitting themselves with White House aides privately admitting things have never been worse for Biden, despite delusionally thinking that they are somehow handling Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza well. Now, this kind of speaks to the hubris of the administration because HuffPost reports that State Department officials actually feel like their expertise is not being considered by the Biden administration. And we know they're aware that their support for Israel's genocide in Gaza is an optics nightmare because they've warned Israel that public support is quickly eroding. But rather than calling for an end to their bombing, they are comically considering smaller bombs as a solution. So they know that they're in trouble. They're very well aware of the fact that they are hemorrhaging support, especially now because of his complicity with Israel's genocide in Gaza. But they still think that they can turn the ship around within a year, and they also seemingly believe that voters are going to forget about his complicity with genocide in a year. And look, they might be right about that. Voters are stupid, they're uninformed, and they have short-term memories. But it's a really dangerous game to play when democracy is at stake. Trump is reportedly mulling a plan to invoke the Insurrection Act on day one in order to violently squash any inevitable protests that occur in response to his re-election. And it's an idea that's cooked up by the same people who brought us Project 2025, a dangerous plan to seize control of the administrative state and dismantle democracy. And he also suggested that he would bring back the Muslim ban and expel foreign nationals who quote, support Hamas, i.e. anyone who criticizes Israel or advocates for Palestinian human rights. So the situation is incredibly bleak. Democracy is at stake. Lives are literally at stake. But that is a chance Biden is willing to take. It's a gamble that he's willing to make because he's not going to budge. So you're probably thinking, well, you know, why not primary him? Well, here's the thing. He's already being primaried. The media doesn't cover his main primary opponent, Marianne Williamson. And here's the thing about a primary. Even though Democrats are disillusioned with Biden and they generally don't want to see a matchup between him and Trump, when you look at polls showing head-to-head -head primary challenges, the same Democratic Party primary voters who are apparently disillusioned with Biden would vote for him again in almost every head-to-head -head matchup. The only person who would beat Biden in a primary is George W. Bush's bestie, Michelle Obama, even though she has repeatedly stated that she has no interest in running ever. But... If you remove Biden from the equation, then things do get a little bit more clear. So let's go back to the Siena College poll that's making all the headlines. As you can see, a named alternative does not fare well because the choices just aren't great when it comes to Democratic Party presidential contenders. But an unnamed generic Democrat has an eight-point advantage against Donald Trump, which indicates that voters are not happy with Biden and they're also not happy with the choices that the Democratic Party is presenting. It's not just the neoliberals, it's progressives too. They don't seem enthusiastic about a Bernie Sanders run again. I'm not either, admittedly, or AOC. They just, they want someone new. That's what these polls indicate. And that tells us that at this point in time, our chances of defeating Trump would increase by eight points if Biden was out of the equation. But yet, he is willing to risk American democracy to selfishly cling to power, even though he knows the chances of him losing are high. Now, thankfully, some Democratic Party elites across the political spectrum are saying, 
what is kind of hard to say, what they don't want to say, what's been taboo for Democratic Party loyalists to say. They are gently trying to nudge Biden into dropping out as soon as possible so other Democrats can cobble together a quick primary campaign before the primaries take place in three months from now. Let's talk about Gaza, Congressman. How much damage is Joe Biden's support for Israel doing to the Democratic base? And how much is that going to cost him in places like Michigan with younger voters, Arab American voters in a key battleground state, which thanks to that new poll from The Times, we already know he's struggling in even before this war. Could this war cost him re-election? Yes, it could. And let me just be very clear. It's one thing to support Israel, which the U.S. has always done and will continue to do. It's another thing to never hold Israel accountable for their behavior, whether it's related to the occupation, the open-air prison that is Gaza, or the war crimes that are taking place right now during this siege. But I will tell you, this is the first time, Jen, that I have felt like the 2024 election is in great trouble for the president and for our democratic control, which is essential to moving forward. Because these young people, Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, but also young people, see this conflict as a moral conflict and a moral crisis. And they they are not going to be brought back to the table easily with, um, you know, if we do not address this. When elected Democrats are sounding the alarm, it would be wise for Biden to listen to members of his own party. Now, liberals will probably dismiss the criticism from Jayapal and Bowman because they're progressive. And what progressives say really has no standing when it comes to the centrists and conservatives within the Democratic Party. But unfortunately for them, it's not just the progressives. It's not just the far left who's speaking out against Biden's chances. It's some of Biden's biggest boosters in 2020. Let's assume the election was November the 3rd of this year. And and they said the candidates are Joe, Joe Biden, the Democrat, Donald Trump, the Republican, uh, Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan, no labels and Cornell West. Mm. Trump would be a betting favorite, all right? Um, And so somebody better wake the up. This is a race about democracy and the state of our democracy and the survival of our democracy. And uh, and that's the the threat on the other side here. And I know how deeply the president feels about that. So he just has to ask himself, is is. You know, is this the best path? Uh, I suspect that he will say yes. Um, But time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's 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 probably good if he does. That right there is very telling to me when you have David Axelrod and James fucking Carville sounding the alarm. That's when you know things are serious. But there's an effort right now to downplay and minimize these warning signs. And it'd behoove all of us to not bury our heads in the sand. Yes, it's still early and a lot can change between now and November of 2024. But it's possible that things don't change enough to stop Trump from winning. And that would be obviously very bad. I don't have to explain to liberals why Trump winning would be a disaster for American democracy and a lot of people. Now, early polls in 2016 showed that Bernie Sanders was also much more electable against Trump than Hillary Clinton. And even though he had a double digit lead against Trump in hypothetical matchups, Democratic elites ignored the warning signs and insisted that Hillary Clinton was the safest bet. I mean, it kind of feels like a repeat of 2016, albeit with Biden, where everybody's saying, ignore the polls. Trust me, Biden is the best bet. He's the safest chance of beating Trump. Don't worry about Trump. It it just it feels like 
deja vu. It feels like there's a disaster straight ahead and we're just we're moonwalking into it. It's just so frustrating. Now, thankfully, more people this time are pointing out the red flags because how could you not learn from 2016 after everyone said Hillary would definitely win and she didn't? But there's still a lot of people, mostly in media, who are not learning from the mistakes that everyone made in 2016. One example, of course, is The View, the subject of this video. Now, as you saw, Anna Navarro told people like David Axelrod to stop clutching his pearls and get to work for Biden, as if Biden's potential failure won't be because of him. It'll be because of voters or people like Axelrod who didn't get to work for Biden. I mean, it doesn't really work that way, but regardless, let's listen to uh, more of her commentary and their commentary in particular, because as you're going to see, most of them kind of express the same sentiment. Well, you know how I feel about polls, because I just feel like, you know, you're polling 4,000 people in a place and you can't tell me that's half the nation. All you can tell me is that, you know, we polled 4,000 people and that's how they felt. Mm -hmm. So I, I always like to make sure that we're clear on polls. Because remember, last time we checked a poll, uh, they had Hillary Clinton winning. Mm -hmm. Look, I think um, people are not quite laser-focused on politics the way we may be uh, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yet, they're going to get there. Nobody has laid a finger on Trump because the Republican primary has been like all these minions fighting amongst themselves who can even tell them apart at this point. Uh, and it doesn't matter. There's going to be a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. You know, uh, Ax says, Axelrod says, uh, this is the last time. No, actually, that ship has sailed. Like, the deadline to get on the, on the ballot for Nevada was two weeks ago. Yeah. There are deadlines that you need to meet in order to be on the ballot, and those deadlines are passing or gone. And so this, you know, I think Democrats need to stop fretting, need to stop looking at this as a warning, and look at it as a wake-up call to organize, to mobilize, to register people, to talk about the accomplishments of this administration. If you want to beat Donald Trump, stop clutching your pearls and get to work. I see it more as a campaign strategy because I think the privilege of another candidate is just not there. You, what, what's the, when they talk about Biden stepping down, what's the next choice? Where do you go from there? Because now you talk about Vice President Harris, who is polling, if we go with the polling, even worse, but you can't step over her. So what are you doing in this one-year runway? I'm going to wait before I start focusing on this because, you know, there isn't... I love when people say, well, you know, he should really be doing this or they should be doing this. And I think to myself, but you're not offering you. What are you offering me? What are you telling me? Don't tell me there's something wrong and then don't tell me how to fix it. They are telling you how to fix it. You just don't want to listen. They're saying Biden should drop the fuck out. But you're plugging your ears and you're saying, no, I don't want to think about this right now. Nope. Biden's definitely going to win. Trump's not going to win. Not a chance that can happen. Nope. No way. No how. And listen, that is so naive. I feel like after 2016, we all should have collectively learned that anything can happen in American politics. But we're just right back to that same thinking that got us Trump in the first place. Now, I also want to point out her dismissal of polls. That is incredibly ignorant. Pollsters aren't just polling like 4,000 random people. They are creating carefully representative samples that can be extrapolated to get a snapshot of where the entire population is at. They can sometimes under or over represent, but polling methodology is much more complicated than she makes it out to be. And even though they're not everything... There's other things to consider besides polls. We dismiss them at our own peril.
Now, there was so much more there that uh, was just wrong, but I'll concede that time is running out. Anna Navarro is correct about that. She said that the deadline to get on the ballot in Nevada was two weeks ago, and that's correct. That is a problem. But my response to that would be, well, either they extend the deadline in the event a new primary takes place or they don't get to participate. It's not like all of these things are written in stone and nothing can change. Yes, things are difficult to change, but they can change. And that brings us to Sarah Haynes, who said, well, you know, what's the next choice? And that's a fair question. But that's what voters have to decide, right? Which is why Biden should drop out. That's 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 the goal. But she noted that Kamala Harris is polling worse. But she said, quote, you can't just step over her, which is shocking to me because, again, it gets back to this mentality that things that are supposed to happen are written in stone. You can't change them. But that mentality is so bizarre, especially when it comes to candidates, because you actually can. Like, you can step over Kamala Harris. She's not the queen. She isn't the heir to the White House throne because Biden anointed her. We live in a democracy, and voters are supposed to decide who they want to elect. And if anything should be learned from elites within the Democratic Party, it's that shoving candidates down our throats and telling us to accept them because it's their turn doesn't always go too well. Maybe that works for Republicans, as we're seeing with Donald Trump. But ask Hillary Clinton how it turned out in 2016 when pundits made it seem as if her win was an inevitability. You can't just do that. You can't just say, well, I know you don't like Kamala, but she's next. So tough. That's not how it works. Now, to be fair, the commentary wasn't all bad because Alyssa Farah, who is the anti-Trump Republican on the panel, or one of two with Anna Navarro, although I don't know if she's a liberal anymore, either way, she's insufferable, but the anti-Trump Republican Alyssa Farah, she actually had a surprisingly reasonable response. But I do think there's enough here that it needs to be a wake-up call to Democrats that Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden. Rachel Maddow, one of the, I think, smartest Democrats I can think of, said it here on our airwaves. My friend David Axrod, he loves Joe Biden. He wants Joe Biden to win. He is warning because he knows the threat that Donald Trump uh, poses to the nation. And I think when you have such a plurality of prominent Democrats, you've got, uh, you know, James Carville, David Ignatius, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal warning about this. It's because they're thinking about the future of the country if it is under Donald Trump. And I just want to say this. I think there's this misconception, and I fall victim to it too now as somebody who no longer supports Trump, that Trump voters are just people who storm the Capitol on January 6th. They're not. We walk by them every day. They're tens of millions of Americans. A lot of my family members are literally only not voting for Trump because he's called me mean names. And they'll be like, my 401k was better. My grocery you know, prices were cheaper then. That is a reality. There are tens of millions of people who still support him. I spent a lot of time in Florida and New Hampshire, and there is an energy there. So I think I'm focused on the Republican primary, which is looking bleak, but this, there is a very real reality that Joe Biden could lose to Donald Trump, and I think Democrats need to take it seriously. I and she is exactly right. Listen, I know that it sounds inconceivable that an indicted insurrectionist wannabe dictator like Trump could ever win the White House again, but this is America. Voters, even if they're uninformed, they make what they believe are rational decisions, usually for selfish reasons. So even if Trump is a criminal, they will vote for him regardless of his criminality if they think that the economy will do better under Trump or if they think there's some net benefit to themselves under Trump. They know about the volatility, the criminality, the stupidity that he would bring. But if they think that their wallets are going to benefit from a second Trump term, even if they're wrong, they're going to vote that way. 
So I don't want to say that I told you so in 2024. I hope that these smug liberals are right. And I hope that Biden does end up winning. But right now, with so much at stake, it just feels irresponsible to ignore these polls and roll the dice with Biden again, especially if you know the danger that a second Trump term poses. But unfortunately, we're likely stuck with Biden. So he's going to spend or have to spend every single second of the next year trying to dig himself out of this hole that he made. But he's got a lot of work to do, and he just doesn't seem to know how to get out of this hole or care that much to get out of this hole. But regardless, we're stuck with him. And I can't imagine that he's going to do the right thing and drop out. But if he does end up losing in 2024, that's on him. That's not on voters. But I genuinely hope that it does not come to that. Are you concerned that some Democrats may not support this? Um, I would hope that all members would support a resolution that condemns terrorism, um, the brutal attacks that were, were perpetrated against uh, the Israeli people um, that were killed. We have 218 hostages. They took 222. Um, I, I, someone who votes against this, I would think, doesn't have a soul. You just saw comments made by corrupt Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz on October 25th ahead of the House vote for a resolution in support of Israel. Now, as you just saw, she preemptively attacked her Democratic colleagues who would vote against it. Now, at the time, she didn't know specifically who wouldn't support her resolution, but we all had a pretty good idea, as did she. Women of color like Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cori Bush, and others. But she claimed that anyone who didn't support this didn't have a soul, which is an incredibly ironic statement to make because... She's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. This is the same person who was forced to resign from her position as DNC chair in 2016 after leaked emails confirmed that she was covertly sabotaging Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in violation of the DNC's own charter. And on top of that, she was given the nickname Debt Trap Debbie for lobbying against regulations on predatory payday lenders after they donated tens of thousands of dollars to her in campaign contributions. And fast forward to today, and Debbie is still just as corrupt as ever. Now, after taking more than $100,000 from the pro-Israel lobby, she sponsored a resolution on their behalf saying that the U.S. stands with Israel even as they carry out war crimes with bombs that we gave them. And the resolution that she's referring to says that the U.S. stands with Israel as it defends itself against the barbaric war launched by Hamas and other terrorists. The resolution makes no mention whatsoever of proportionality and it doesn't mourn innocent Palestinians murdered indiscriminately by Israeli bombs. And for Furthermore, it commits to additional aid in Israel and calls for sanctions against Iran. But she's saying, if you don't support that, then you have no soul. Now, leftists did not support it because... Israel's right to self-defense should not include collective punishment, the use of white phosphorus against civilian populations, and in total, nine progressives voted against it. Bowman, Carson, Bush, Green, Lee, Ocasio-Cortez, Omar, Ramirez, and Tlaib. They were also joined by Thomas Massey, and additionally, six Democrats voted present. Kesar, Castro, Velasquez, Presley, Garcia, and Jayapal. Now, the question is, why are we still talking about this resolution? And it's because that resolution 
caused a lot more friction within the Democratic Party than we initially thought. And we're learning now that Debbie Wasserman Schultz's dumbass comments there, her saying that her colleagues of color don't have souls if they don't go along with her genocidal support, uh, that really pissed them off, apparently. Surprising, right? And this is according to Manu Raju, but he explains what happened after she made that dumbass remark. And that comment sort of uh, prompted outrage among key Democrats, and particularly the 15 who voted against that measure. Some of them, all of them minorities, some of them Muslim Americans, and some of them braving this directly to the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who has sought to tamp down these tensions internally, tried to get his members on the same page as this divide has been growing. We're told that one of the members even talked to W. Wasserman Schultz and was concerned that that is a racial trope that is that would be used, calling someone soulless, uh, something that could be uh, interpreted uh, very negatively among Afro-African-American members in particular. Wasserman Schultz, we were told, indicated she was not aware of that in, in which she made that comment here. But Dana, all showing the divide that is just persisting as this war carries on, the debate within the Democratic Party that is now spilling out into public view, but very much a private debate as well. So needless to say, she pissed them off so much that one of them actually confronted her about that. Good. I'm glad that these Democrats are standing up for themselves because they're right and she's wrong. They're right about that resolution and they're right about the need for a ceasefire. Now, the fact that this resolution created tension behind the scenes isn't surprising at all, considering the fact that a lot of this tension actually spilled over into the public. For example, Josh Gothheimer, who took nearly $300,000 from the Israeli lobby, condemned his Democratic colleagues on Twitter for not supporting the resolution, writing, Last night, 15 of my Democratic colleagues voted against standing with our ally Israel and condemning Hamas terrorists who brutally murdered, raped, and kidnapped babies, children, men, women, and the elderly, including Americans. They are despicable and do not speak for our party. Now, Andre Carson, one of the Democrats he called despicable here, had some choice words for him in response. I think he's uh, uh, not acting in the role as a member of Congress. I think he's shown himself to be very emotional. Like most cowardly people, when you confront them, they're afraid. Uh, I'm unafraid of the guy. And if he wants to call us despicable, I'm saying he's a coward. And he's a punk and he should remember why the people sent him here. And if he wants to play some kind of tough guy or gangster, we can handle it like gentlemen and we can get into something else. Hey, pretty strong words that you really don't hear from a member of one the same party going out, even members of opposing parties saying that. I did add, reach out to Godheimer himself and I asked him about Mr. Carson's comments. Godheimer said, said, I'll sit down with Mr. Carson anytime to talk about how we can bring hostages home, including all Americans, provide immediate humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians being used as human shields and crush Hamas and all terrorists seeking to do us harm trying to de-escalate things. I'm also told that they'll, Carson and Gottheimer are likely to meet, according to a Democratic leadership source. And by now, I'm assuming that they've already met. But I just love that Gottheimer talked shit on Twitter and then immediately changed his tune the moment he was confronted about it. Love it. Democrats like Gottheimer and Wasserman Schultz are genuinely spineless, and they may actually be right about the fact that they represent elected members of their party. 
But let's be clear. They do not represent voters. The 15 Democrats who they're attacking constantly, those are the ones who are representing voters. Those are the individuals who are representing 80% of Democratic voters who support a ceasefire in Gaza. And these same cowards, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Josh Gothheimer, predictably voted with Republicans to censure Rashida Tlaib along with individuals like Richie Torres and others. And I'm sure that you'll be shocked to learn that all 22 Democrats that voted to censure Tlaib received donations from APAC. What a surprise there. Now, we did a whole video on this, but APAC is a pro-Israel interest group that lobbies on behalf of the Israeli government, not the Israeli people or Jewish people. And they also donate to anti-LGBTQ plus and insurrectionist Republicans. But these Democrats took money from this far-right racist organization, and now they're condemning one of their own colleagues because that's what this organization would want them to do. Now, like the vote on the resolution, the vote to censure also caused a lot more tension within the Democratic Party. And here's some of the immediate responses after the vote took place. Phrases like from the river to the sea. You're not simply advocating for the creation of a Palestinian state. You're advocating for the destruction of Israel as a Jewish state. And that crosses a line that no member of Congress should ever cross. It's hate speech and Congress has a right to condemn it. It is outrageous. I am embarrassed for those Democrats who voted to censure their own colleague, who voted against free speech. It is an embarrassment. Listen, I've been critical of Jayapal before, but good on her for calling them out and shame on Richie Torres. You know, as the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, though, Pramila Jayapal could vote to remove Torres from that caucus. And I think that his support for a far-right ethno-nationalist war criminal government is grounds for his removal, considering that that doesn't really scream progressive to me. But I mean, the same 15 Democrats who have been targeted by right-wing APAC shills are seemingly fed up. And they're done biting their tongues. And it's really nice to see them finally fight back and defend themselves. For example, AOC responded to Tlaib Sancher saying, it is not lost on anyone how many offensive, violent, and racist things people regularly hear members of Congress say, yet virtually the only one that gets censured for her political speech also happens to be the only Palestinian American. It does not reflect well at all. Now, Cori Bush added, it's outrageous that my colleagues are blatantly attempting to silence the only Palestinian American representative in Congress, but it's not surprising. This is the same house that upholds bigotry and racism every day. Solidarity with Representative Rashida, your voice belongs here. And to be clear, it's not just overt bigotry and racism from Republicans. It's casual racism that they also experience from Democrats as well. Democrats like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Josh Gothheimer, who are quick to scold Muslims and black and brown people within their own party for not falling in line, but yet they don't have that same energy for Republicans like Max Miller or Brian Mast, who are literally calling for a genocide against Palestinians. No, they spend their time condemning the one Palestinian in Congress who's saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't allow Israel to indiscriminately murder Palestinians. But yet, people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz have the audacity to say that people like Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush are the ones with no souls. Mm, actually, they're the only fucking people in Congress with souls, Debbie. And they also possess something else that you lack. A fucking spine. So Rashida Tlaib is courageous, as are the other Democrats who are doing the right thing here and challenging the status quo. And the last thing I'll say is support Rashida Tlaib. I'm going to leave a donation link to her in the description box. She is going to be primaried for this, and there's going to be a lot of Israel lobby money against her because she is speaking truth to power. And 
she's persuading people. So that's a threat to the status quo, and she's going to be crucified because of it. So I think that it's incumbent on us to support her during these really difficult times. So support Rashida Tlaib because she is somebody who has a soul, which is why she is acknowledging the humanity of Israelis and Palestinians and individuals like Debbie Wasserman Schultz don't even pretend to care about Gazans. The people of Kentucky elected me as just the third two consecutive term governor in our history. This wasn't my win. This was our victory. It was a victory that sends a loud, clear message. A message that candidates should run for something and not against someone. Well, last night's elections did not go too well for Republicans, and as I record this video, they are currently coping and seething, and as you watch this video, they are likely still coping and seething because this probably isn't going to be a wake-up call to them because I think they're incapable of introspection and growth, but it is very, very disappointing if you're a Republican, in particular if you want women's reproductive rights to be controlled. So we're going to talk about some of the results and we'll get to the coping and seething. But first, let's talk about Kentucky, because as you saw, Kentucky's Democratic governor, Andy Bashir defeated his Republican opponent and won re-election. Now, this is significant for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this is a deep red state that Trump won by 25.9 points in 2020. Yet, a Democrat just won re-election. Now, second of all, this is important because the GOP tried to drive down his popularity by using trans rights as a wedge issue, but it failed, which gives us some insight into how this issue fares at the ballot box. And thankfully, not great. So let me give you some additional context. Back in March, the state GOP passed a bill that banned gender-affirming care for trans youth. It also regulated bathroom usage of trans people and mandated classroom censorship akin to Florida's Don't Say Gay law. And this was likely intended to be a sort of political trap for Bashir, because if he was too afraid to veto massive legislation during an election year, well, his base could feel disillusioned and he could lose. But if he did veto it, he was basically teeing up an attack against him by Republicans who would inevitably portray him as a woke groomer or something. But he did the right thing. He vetoed this bigoted legislation. And on top of that, he defended trans youth. AP reports Governor Andy Bashir said in a written veto message that the bill allows too much government interference in personal health care issues and rips away the freedom of parents to make medical decisions for their children. In his one-page message, he warned that the bill's repercussions would include an increase in youth suicides. The governor said, My faith teaches me that all children are children of God, and Senate Bill 150 will endanger the children of Kentucky. Now, predictably, Republicans quickly pounced on the governor's veto to try to portray him as out of touch with most Kentuckians on the issue. Quote, Andy Bashir thinks it's okay for children to have access to life-altering sex change surgery and drugs before they turn 18, state Republican Party spokesperson Sean Southard said in a statement. Today, he revealed how radical he truly is. Now, as journalist Aaron Reed points out, Republicans went on to spend $2 million in ads trying to portray Bashir as an extremist on LGBTQ plus issues, and they ran ads featuring Riley Gaines to warn voters that trans people are somehow destroying women's sports. But despite all of that, he won. 
and they lost. And this indicates that demonizing trans people isn't as politically advantageous as Republicans hoped it would be. Bashir even flipped Letcher County, which Trump won by nearly 60 points. And Bashir's success has left a lot of people confused. For example, Gateway Pundit, a right-wing outlet, asks, someone please explain how Kentucky Republicans can vote in the GOP AG and Secretary of State by 17% and 22% and then vote for the Democrat for governor. How does that work? Now, if you look at the responses, they essentially all think that it's rigged because Democrats apparently forgot to rig the down-ballot races when they were rigging the gubernatorial race. But in reality, it's a pretty simple formula. But I'll let Bashir explain what he did to win. Our blueprint was as simple as show up, work hard, get results, and care about everybody. And, and don't get distracted by whatever the issue of the day is in Washington, D.C. Now, the, when people wake up in the morning, they don't think about President Biden or President Trump. They think about, uh, do they have a, a good enough job? Uh, can they afford to take their kids or their parents to a doctor when they're sick? Do they feel safe in their community? Are the kids, their kids getting the best education? Is the road they drive on uh, to work uh, safe? Uh, does it need repairs? The, those are the things that impact everybody's daily lives. And I hope that not just Democrats, but Republicans and independents go there. You know, enough of trying to demonize groups of people, of driving a wedge between people, of, of the attacks and, and the anger. How about we all talk about how to improve people's lives, and then the electorate can decide who has the better plan or the better ideas or who they trust more to, to move them forward. And that's it. It's not rocket science, but other Democrats just can't seem to figure out how to win, especially in these red states. And oftentimes they lose when they shift further to the right to appeal to moderates because they end up isolating their core base. But just deliver and they will reward you by voting for you. Don't be afraid to challenge Republicans. Don't fall for their gotchas. Just deliver for your constituents and you will win. It's that simple, really. Now, on top of that, he also just ran a good campaign and he found ways to cut through the GOP's propaganda and appeal directly to voters. And this viral ad that he used in this campaign to speak to voters on the issue of abortion is one of the examples cited as to why his messaging was just so effective. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. Now, it is really hard to hear her story. It's gut-wrenching and nauseating, but people need to hear her story. They need to see the reality of post-Roe America and how anti-abortion Republicans want to further victimize victims. So that ad is one of the moments from his campaign where he demonstrated to voters that he gets it. He understands these issues and he's willing to decenter himself and center the voices of people affected by these policies. Now, on the subject of abortion, well, the good news doesn't stop there because Ohio became the 24th state to legalize recreational marijuana. And most importantly, they voted to codify abortion rights into their state's constitution. And this was a hard fought victory because Republicans did everything in their power to prevent this from happening, but it still failed. 
So if you're unfamiliar with issue one, here's some additional context from our coverage of it in August. Now, what they wanted to do was make it more difficult for citizens to amend their state's constitution by raising the vote threshold to 60%, as opposed to a simple 50 plus 1% majority. Now, this ballot initiative would have cemented that. And they cynically chose to hold this special election in August, even though literally earlier this year, they effectively banned August special elections, citing the cost and low turnout as part of their reasoning. But they chose to violate their own law to capitalize on low turnout in a brazen effort to push through an undemocratic amendment that would increase the odds that they would defeat this upcoming pro-choice ballot initiative. So their desperation here is palpable, but they're not wrong to think that they'd lose if they didn't rat fuck this election because as nbc news reports abortion rights have won in literally every single election since roe v wade was overturned just over a year ago kansas voters rejected an amendment that it would have eliminated the right to an abortion and on november 8th abortion rights won in all five states where it was on the ballot notably including red states like kentucky and montana and a purple state like michigan and ohio is now the seventh state to reject attempts to restrict reproductive productive rights thus far. And this doesn't even take into account the Wisconsin Supreme Court election held in April, which was largely about reproductive rights as well, where the pro-choice judge won over the far-right anti-choice judge. So two things are clear. One, after seeing that video, I need a haircut. But two, Republicans were scared shitless. They also purged voters from the rolls, which I didn't mention there. But voters saw through their bullshit. Now, fast forward to today, and they've now protected reproductive rights in the state's constitution. And it's evident that the GOP's propaganda failed and their opposition to abortion rights hurt them, even with independents and some pro-life Republicans. And that's not hyperbole. The New York Times reports Wendy Pace, a 52-year-old independent, said she didn't normally vote in off-year elections, but came out because she wanted to vote yes on issue one. I have a teenage daughter and I don't like having my rights taken away from me, she said. I fear that this is just the beginning of rights being taken away and I do fear for my daughter and what her rights would be going forward. Another person says, I'm a Christian, but I am thinking long term. It's between a person and their maker, said Carolyn Lloyd, 54. While she typically votes Republican, she said, I would hate to see women suffer because of maybe a weak moment or malfunction with birth control and have to bear that burden. Another person says, I think mother's lives are important. I think baby's lives are important. But if a little girl is raped at 10 years old, I don't think she should have to carry the baby if she is pregnant, said Delena Reed, 65, a registered Republican who considers herself pro-life for religious reasons. Now, these anecdotal examples demonstrate how toxic the Republican Party's opposition to abortion has become to the point where some of their own voters are turning against them and people who don't typically vote are galvanized by this issue. I mean, we heard it from that one lady who said, I don't usually vote in these, you know, off your elections, but I'm coming out to vote specifically because of abortion. Now, what's interesting to me is that even after multiple defeats on this issue, Republicans are still shocked by this. In fact, this tweet by David Brody demonstrates this perfectly, where he says, here's an absolutely disgusting exit poll statistic from last night. 24% of so-called white born-again or evangelical Christians voted for Ohio's pro-abortion constitutional amendment. It's not just the left, just horrible. <laughs> it's so good. Just inject that tweet 
right into my fucking veins. I love it so much. Now, other Republicans are predictably seething as well. And in response to exit polls in Ohio showing broad support for abortion rights, theocratic fascist commentator Matt Walsh responded by saying, you will hear from many on the right that this result means we should give up and simply accept the mass slaughter of infant children. I will never accept it. I don't care what the polls say. Forfeit this fight and you forfeit your soul. Nothing matters after that. Look, I for one am very glad that he is continuing to pretend like abortion rights equals baby killing because that deceitful strategy of lying has been a demonstrable failure for Republicans. But by all means, please double down on that losing strategy, Matt. Please continue to persuade Republicans to run against abortion rights because it's going really well for you all. Oh, love it. Love it so much. Now, there's also more elections that I want to react to. Um, big elections, small elections, but here's what stood out to me. So in Virginia, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin tried to hold control of the state house while flipping the Senate to Republicans. Now, he ran on his political accomplishments and assumed that his popularity would carry Republicans to victory. He also tried to create a new blueprint for Republicans struggling to sell abortion bans to voters, and he told voters that if Republicans took control of the state that they could look forward to a more moderate ban on abortion. Now, while he did this, down-ballot Republicans mostly ran on transphobia, but Virginians told them all to eat shit. Because not only did Democrats hold control of the Senate, they actually flipped the House, and on top of that, they elected the state's first transgender state senator, Donica Rome. So it turns out that Glenn Youngkin overestimated his popularity, and Republicans overestimated the popularity of transphobia. You love to see it. Now, in New Jersey, the entire state is now controlled by Democrats after they flipped the House of Delegates from Republicans to Democrat. And in Pennsylvania, Democrat Daniel McCaffrey defeated Republican Carolyn Carluccio in their state Supreme Court race. Now, in Mississippi, Republican Tate Reeves, a.k.a. Mitch McConnell's younger doppelganger, did end up defeating his Democratic opponent and win re-election. But it was still surprisingly close. He won by 4.6 points after Trump beat Biden here by 16.5 points. And that's big because we're talking about Mississippi. I mean, this is a deep red state. But as you see, a Democrat got really close to beating an incumbent Republican. That is a sign for Republicans that things might be going bad for them in the future, even in red states. Now, those were the biggest races, but there's still some significant local races that I do want to touch on. So late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's daughter lost the school board race that she was running in. And um, I'm glad that that happened. But regardless, I'm sure that her father is still smiling up at her from hell and is proud regardless. Now, a Republican running for city council in Texas was arrested for possessing CP literally hours before the election, and he ended up losing. In fact, he came in third place, which is reassuring because there was some concern that they would still vote for him regardless, but he came in third. So, that's good. Now, this one is crazy to me. So Democrat Joseph DiMartino won the Derby mayor race in Connecticut after Republican DiGiovanni Jr. beat the incumbent mayor, Rich DeZekin, in the GOP primary by 10 votes. Now, Republicans presumably ousted DeZekin because he was too moderate, whereas DiGiovanni is a MAGA chud and he is literally facing charges over his participation in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, so, you know, he was he was the MAGA guy and they 
wanted a MAGA guy. So they voted in him by 10 votes. But after the incumbent, Dezekian, lost, he ran a sore loser campaign, split the GOP vote, and the Democrat ended up winning. It is a beautiful tale of Republicans fucking around and finding out. Now, one more thing that I want to draw your attention to is Aaron Reed's write-up about how Moms for Liberty fascists suffered major defeats in school board races across the country. And I'm not going to share the article with you, but I'll just link to that down below and I encourage you to read it because it is very encouraging. Now, let's get to the part that you've all been waiting for, the right-wing cope. So as you saw, Matt Walsh was very sad about voters' stance on abortion, but to push back against this notion that he is wrong and it's a losing issue, let's look at what he's saying. Quote, five years ago, lots of people on the right assured me that the trans issue was a political loser. We proved them wrong, really? Now, nearly all of those same people are assuring me that the abortion issue was a political loser. I'm sensing a pattern. My brother in Christ, you didn't prove shit. Most Republicans who took your advice and ran almost exclusively on transphobia got rocked. But don't you worry, I'm sure you're going to prove everyone right about abortion, just like you were proven right about the popularity of trans rights. This is maximum cope, but um, it, it's just it's so funny to me that he refuses to admit that he's wrong. This is cognitive dissonance in action, and it's hilarious to watch. But I do want to move on from Walsh because Rick Santorum, someone who I haven't heard about, someone who I forgot existed, is also grappling with Republicans' uh, poor performance, and he's going to make a really interesting admission here. And you put very sexy things like abortion and marijuana on the ballot, and a lot of young people come out and vote. It, 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 was, a, it was a secret sauce for disaster in Ohio. I don't know what they were thinking, yeah. but um, that's why I'm, I, I thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because right. pure democracies <laughs> are not the way to run a country. So, so then Incredible. Just fucking incredible. We can't let people vote on individual issues because most of the time they're going to vote against Republicans, so it's best to not let the peasants decide for themselves. I mean, in this moment, Republicans are collectively coming to the realization that most Americans just don't agree with them. They don't. Even Sean Hannity admitted this on Fox News, and the sadness that he was feeling while he made this admission was almost palpable. I'm really going to be honest about this, and I consider myself pro-life, but I understand that's not where the country is. Uh, I would say first trimester or Dobbs 15 weeks seems to be where the country is, Kaylee. I want to stay with you on this issue. And and these issues will be decided by the states. You asked you talk to the Speaker of the House. I talk to the Speaker of the House. It is not going to be an issue in in the House of Representatives. This is not going to be decided any longer in Washington, D.C. The states will decide. But de Democrats right. are trying to scare women into thinking Republicans right. don't want abortion legal under any circumstances. Now, where on earth would Democrats get this idea from? Hmm. A better question is where on earth would Trump get this idea from? Because he also warned Republicans that abortion extremism and bans with no exceptions are going to lose them elections. So it almost feels like maybe Republicans are the ones scaring women, not Democrats, doesn't it? Of course not. It's Democrats. They're always the bad guys, no matter what. There's no objectivity, no nuance whatsoever. It's not Republicans. It's Democrats. Amazing. But I want to get to the best cope of the entire election cycle, because... Failed New York City Council candidate Brian Robinson wrote this concession speech on Twitter after losing, and it is an absolute banger. 
quote, thank you to all that fight the good fight with me. NYC is irredeemable. Congratulations to Keith Powers. The city has blindly chosen its own suicide. Jews get out while you can. My family will be. To the Nazi machine that killed the great city, go fuck yourselves, soulless bastards. I think that he might be a little bit mad that he lost the election. So in conclusion, these results are absolutely fantastic. It indicates that despite Joe Biden's dismal poll numbers, voters are still motivated to vote based on issues, which is a good sign and puts me a little bit more at ease after seeing the New York Times poll published on Sunday, which showed that Biden was losing in almost all key swing states. So in these dark times, uh, I'm really happy to bring you at least some positive news. Things might be bad, but Americans are seemingly waking up and rejecting right-wing propaganda when it comes to abortion and trans rights. And if the fear-mongering around these issues isn't persuading voters, then what else do Republicans have? You know, they're not running on economic issues because giving tax breaks, breaks to the wealthy isn't going to galvanize people. They're not running on increasing the social safety net or actually delivering for voters. So what do they have? And the answer is fuck all, which is why they're losing. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.